We're going to look at Mark 10 tonight. All quarter we've been looking at Mark and uh, asking the question of who is Jesus and uh, seeing probably ways he undoes our understanding of him, the, our biases of who he is, uh, maybe the ways we've placed him in corners and all that kind of stuff. And uh, tonight in Mark 10 is a passage that I have thought about uh, ever since I took this call to Stanford. Um, I think this passage... Uh, is about me, and I think this passage is about Stanford, and I think you'll see why uh, fairly quickly. So, Mark 10, chapter, uh, uh, verse 17. And Jesus was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You still lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And he said to them, Then who can be, and and, excuse me, and they said to him, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at him and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus' encounter with this man. And as we consider it, dear God, we need you to teach us. Uh, We need you to challenge us. And we need you to give us the courage to begin to maybe follow you the way you are calling us out, dear God. It is a fearful thing to follow you, but it is a sweet thing to follow you. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to do it. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so I had a big, long introduction to this, and I'm scrapping it right now because this text doesn't need an introduction for, the, for, for us, for this room, uh, for both me and for y'all. Because here's who this guy is, in case you haven't picked up on it. He's a pretty good guy who's doing pretty well. That's what he is. He's a good person who's doing well in life. And that describes everybody in this room. I know there are tragedies, I know there there are stories in here that are all unique and hard, but by and large, you can kind of safely conclude in a room full of Stanford people and the kind of person who gets asked to work with Stanford people, so yeah, I'm riding your coattails. Um, This is a room of pretty good people who are doing pretty well. And that's who this man is. He's a pretty good person who's doing pretty well. And he comes to Jesus... Because even though he's doing pretty good and he's pretty successful in life, he still senses a lot of spiritual uncertainty. And so he comes to Jesus with the big question that you almost kind of feel like this has got to be the question that drives all of the Gospels, all the Bible. Why does this question not show up earlier? But the big question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if there is a text or a story that a room full of people like us need to encounter and study, it is a pretty good guy who's doing pretty well coming to Jesus because he's still spiritually insecure and asking, what am I supposed to do? Right? This is not a bad person. It's not the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes Jesus encounters. This is not a poor person 
that Jesus encounters. This is not a sick person that Jesus encounters. This is a pretty good person. He really is. I'm not saying that facetiously. He's a pretty good person who's doing pretty well. And yet, he has a question that really belies the spiritual inadequacy he still feels. What am I supposed to do? Because being pretty good and being pretty successful doesn't get us there. And we all know it because we're all still frightened. And so he gives us three things. And this is, uh, this is, this is my you know, best attempt at writing an A-plus uh, sermon at seminary. They always want you to have the same letter at the beginning of each point. But I both have imperatives for you tonight, and I both have three letters that are all the same. So Brian Chapel, my seminary professor on preaching, would be proud. Um, here's the deal. And it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of sweetly simple. What should pretty good people do who are doing pretty well to inherit eternal life? Repent, release, and rest. You can just remember, you memorize that really easy. Repent, release, and rest. And that's what Jesus offers this guy. Right? Because the first one is this, the, the call to repentance. It starts out, or before it even starts out, this is what we've got to all recognize. Everybody knows this, even though... We don't want to admit it, regardless of where you are or identify as a Christian, as a skeptic, as somewhere in that process. We all know that we're not quite good enough. I don't have to spend any time proving that, because we all know it about ourselves. And I don't mean that you're not good enough for someone else. I mean, you look at yourself, morally, spiritually, professionally, all these different ways, and you know that you're not good enough. You're good. And I'm good. It's actually okay to say that. Even Calvinists can say that, actually. But I just scare a lot of people. But it's okay. Um, but none of us feel good enough. And that's the urgency that brings this man. Notice, he runs, and kneel, he runs to Jesus and kneels at his feet. Where does this urgency come from? It actually comes from successfully being a pretty good person and sensing that things still aren't right. That actually produces a sense of urgency. Because what happens is, this is us, right? We all believe there's this horizon, this image of the us that we're going to become. At the end of college, when we get married, when we get our job, whatever it is, this horizon we're aiming towards uh, with all of our life goals. And when we get to that horizon, right, then we're finally going to have rest. We won't have that beleaguered sense of still not being good enough, right? When we're finally disciplined enough, organized enough, and acting the right way. Okay, the urgency of the rich young ruler is this. It's the urgency of someone who's gotten to that horizon and found out it didn't work. He's done well, and he's been good. He's gotten to the stage in life we all want to get to. And it's produced a sense of urgency because he's like, wow, it didn't work. It didn't work. One of the things I do often in my job, and I love to do because it gives me a chance to talk about Jesus... But often, is I meet with insecure good people. I meet mostly uh, with insecure good people. Good people who haven't done anything terribly bad. Again, we all have some skeletons, and, and there are certainly some darker stories and some lighter stories. There is a spectrum of things. But generally speaking, I meet with people who don't have any secret horror stories about things they've done, but they're insecure. This sense of falling short. This is why Christian bookstores 
if you are not Christian bookstores, regular bookstores, but also Christian bookstores, when you look in the religion section, you look in the Christian section, all it is is self-help books, right? With lists and methodologies for being a better person. You know who buys Christian self-help books? Good people. No bad people buy those books. Only good people who still feel insecure and inadequate. Bad people are not going in there trying to improve, right? All the good people are making all the Christian writers wealthy, right? We go and buy them because we still feel like we're not good enough. And we can't rest because there's this sense that our goodness is too unfinished, right? And I mean goodness in the most broad term, just good as a person, spiritually, morally, professionally, academically, intellectually, socially. And Jesus responds to this guy with one of his more curious responses, and Jesus is kind of tipping his cards. He says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And what Jesus is doing is, Jesus is not saying, I'm not good. What he's actually saying is this, the manner in which you evaluate this term good, it's broken. You look and you think, you look at me, this is what Jesus is saying to the guy, and you think, he seems nice, he's healed people, he's fed people, people seem to like him, he's a holy man, so he's good. Right? I even get that a little bit, right? Because you're a pastor, so people assume that I'm good and that I'm not in the not good enough category that everybody else is in. And when people assume that and say, like, you have a special connection, God, or you're a holy man, it makes me incredibly socially awkward. I have no idea how to respond to it because it's not true. I'm not good enough either. And I feel my not good enoughness as well. But people make assumptions about good just like this guy did. And Jesus responds then, right? He, he moves on. Well, you know the commandments. And he rattles off the latter half of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he, re- he responds, and he says this earnestly to Jesus. He really does. And, and, and it's, it's shocking, but at the same time, the guy's earnest. He says, all these I've kept since childhood. And Jesus doesn't disagree with him. Jesus doesn't take this chance to say, oh, you don't understand the holiness of God. You don't understand what obedience really looks like. It actually says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus felt compassion toward him. But here's the question for us, and it's the question for this guy. Why is being good not good enough? This guy was a good guy. I think he probably wasn't a liar. He probably didn't fool around... Uh, sexually, he probably had a good relationship with his parents. He probably hadn't stolen anything. I think we can safely assume that on the external keeping of the law, he actually was a pretty good person. But he's like all good people. He's still insecure about where he stands with God. Why is it that good doesn't seem to be good enough? And this is why. What is his metric for his, the security of his salvation? It's His goodness. What is it that He is trusting in? His goodness. What is it that He's looking to grow in His life, and if I can get this to grow, I can secure my eternal state? His own goodness. The Bible is very clear, Paul most explicitly in Galatians 3, in saying no one is saved by being good. That's what he means when he says no one's saved by keeping the law. Do you know no one is saved by being good? The Bible is very clear and explicit on that. The law itself is a good thing, but it cannot give life. That's what Paul says. The law cannot give you life. And we keep looking to moral improvement and self-improvement 
for life, and we never get it. We never find ourselves being good enough. And some implications of that is is this. It may very well be that the reason that you feel no vibrancy and no life and no security in your relationship with God is not because you're not good enough. That's often what we think. I don't, I'm not experiencing the richness of being a Christian right now because I'm not good enough. It, it actually it will not come if you start to act better. That's what we all think. But rather the reason, potentially one of the reasons you're not experiencing the joy of being in Jesus is because you're actually trusting in your goodness. Because you look around at others and you think, but I'm doing pretty good. So why don't I get to be happy in Jesus? It's absolutely true. And this is not the sermon tonight, but but it it bears saying. It's absolutely true that the path to intimacy with God and to a rich experience of the Christian faith, it involves repenting of our bad things. We've dealt with that. We've talked about it on other occasions. Turning from them, taking them to God, asking for forgiveness, seeking healing. But it's often true that people miss all throughout the Bible that you actually also have to change the way you relate to your good things. In a real sense, we need to repent of our good things. We need to walk away from them as well. Isaiah 64 actually says this about our good stuff in life. It says, your good stuff, our good stuff, are righteous rags. They're still dirty rags. And you see, what everybody knows, Christian or not, is if God is holy, you can't walk into His presence covered up with your moral filth, right? All our bad things. But what no one ever thinks about is the fact that the Bible says, you know what, you can't also walk into the presence of God covered up in all your good things because they're not good enough either. We know we can't go into God's presence with our sin all over us. But you can't go into God's presence with your goodness all over you because your goodness, our goodness, is still filthy rags. And that's why we're still insecure in our faith and insecure in our relationship with God is because we never stopped and realized... No, 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 even my goodness doesn't make, doesn't make me acceptable before God. So how do you know that you're still trying to walk into God's presence and you're trying to experience His intimacy covered in your goodness? A couple of ways I think you, you can know that that's maybe something you're falling to. Is the first one is obvious. When you fall into sin, right? When things get hard, when you're making poor decisions, how do you right things between you and God? How do you restore or restart the relationship? If you're trying to go to God covered in your own goodness, then the way that you always restart and restore that relationship is by endeavoring to do better. Turning in on yourself and saying, this time, I'm not going to. Right? The focus and the drive and the hope is turned in on self. Do better. So if when, you, when you fall into sin, if your solution to that is to endeavor and, and will to do better... You're still trying to go to God covered in your goodness. Because you know what? You might still do better. It's actually true. It's possible. Maybe if you willed hard enough, you would act better. And that's right. You would be going to God covered in your goodness. And you'd still be insecure because your goodness just doesn't feel like it's good enough. Because it's not. So, that's one marker. One of the ways you may know that you're still trying to go go to God covered in your goodness. The second one is this. Your religious state or status is often measured by comparison to others. As long as your life is admirable relative to certain portions of the population of your peers, then you safely conclude that me and God are on the same page. 
right? I, my life is morally admirable compared to several other people. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Therefore, me and God are on the same page. I fit the, the ideal of what a 21st century kind of moral Christian college student should look like. And of course, you can't read the Bible and not realize that that's dreadfully and woefully inadequate understanding of the holiness of God. And in that situation, the, the thing is, it's actually our pride about our goodness that's keeping us from God, not our shame about our badness. It's the pride about our goodness that's keeping us from experiencing Him, not our shame about our badness. Because we're actually pretty decent at offering up our badness and seeking forgiveness. Third way you can tell you're going to God covered in your goodness. Uh, and this one, this one is from years of experience as a campus minister. Your religious vocabulary involves talking about God a lot, but rarely talking about Jesus. And some of you have heard me say this before. The person that relies on their goodness rarely finds Jesus to be the treasure of your Christianity, rarely finds the name of Jesus to be something sweet, but rather you talk about God a lot. Right? The grace of God in Jesus is not the thing that you're hoping for, but rather the thing you're mostly hoping for is therapeutic help and life decision guidance. And that's what you trust God for. And you don't need Jesus for those things, so you just seek out God. So what is your vocabulary involved? Does it involve the name of Jesus very much, or do you mostly just talk about God when you think about spiritual things? I think that's a key indicator that maybe you're still going to God covered in your goodness. And if you're here tonight and you're, you're considering Christianity and, and you're skeptical and you're like, this kind of stuff is what makes me nervous, and you might be drawing the right conclusion right now that, yeah, part of the point of this is that when we say no goodness is good enough, that we're confirming what Paul says in Romans 3 when what Moses says in Genesis 6 and 9, that no one is truly good. Nobody's truly good. That everyone is a sinner and our sin has separated us from God. And you might feel, okay, I'm not sure I can believe in a God or religion that says everybody's a sinner. Right? That's one of the objections that maybe you have. And I want to propose to you what the alternate option really is. Because there's not three options, there's only two. We might be prone to think there's three options, right? Here's the third option that doesn't exist. And the third option is... Okay, but everybody's basically good. I don't want to believe in a religion that says everybody's basically bad. I want to believe in a religion that's everybody's basically good. And you feel like you can say that in a classroom, but you don't believe it in life because nobody loves, because nobody believes that, because it's untenable. Because here is something that is true that you can't deny. Bad people are bad. Bad people really are bad. And you can't make the argument that all people are are good and therefore deserve good things. The Bible reinforces this. All of human history reinforces this. And everybody experiences this reality that when a bad person does something bad to you, you want justice for them. So maybe in a classroom you'll argue everybody's good, but everybody at some point encounters, bad people are bad and I don't like that and that's not okay. So one option, it's not an option that everybody's basically good and deserves good things. So then what are the options, right? The second one is this. Good people are good and bad people are bad. And good people who do good things get good things and bad people who are bad get bad things. And that's really the only other viable option besides Scripture. Right? Good people are good, bad people are bad. Good people should get good things, bad people should get bad things. And what I want to propose to you 
is that actually the doctrine of the universal sinfulness of mankind, far from being a tasteless or maybe offensive doctrine of Christianity, is one of the sweetest doctrines of Christianity because this is what it says. It's what Jesus is bringing us to here. Nobody's good enough, but God still offers His love and offers eternal life to anyone, regardless of your goodness. This means there's hope for good people and bad people. The doctrine that we're all sinful, it doesn't make God less appealing. Consider this for a moment. It's quite the opposite. It actually puts on brighter display His love and His patience and His compassion. The goodness that His love is not conditioned on our goodness. Universal sinfulness actually highlights the generosity of God. Right? So consider this. God's grace, it it offers us rest and freedom from the condemnation of our sin. And we knew that. And that's good news. But this is what Jesus is saying right here and drawing out right here. What is also offered in the gospel is rest from the insufficiency of our good things. And that's good news too. And in faith really involves repenting from your trust in good things. We don't just need to repent from our sins. We need to let go of our good things as well. So repenting, what must I do? I must repent. Secondly, release. The conversation continues. Having established that his goodness isn't good enough, he says, what must I do? The question we all want to know the answer to, what must I do? What am I supposed to do? And Jesus clearly and directly answers him right? in very direct terms. There's one thing needful. Sell everything that you have, give it away to the poor and follow me. And when you read that, and when I read that, we're all dying for the explanation that says, well, that doesn't really mean everybody needs to sell everything they have and follow Jesus, right? What's Jesus doing? Is he opposed to wealth? Is wealth, by definition, a bad thing? Does he think that being rich is bad? Obviously not. He doesn't require that transaction of Abraham, who's wealthy, of Joseph, who's wealthy, of David and Solomon, who are wealthy, of Joseph of Arimathea, who's wealthy. Most likely, some of his disciples that were fishermen... It seems to be that they have several servants and several boats, so they're wealthy as well. So God doesn't go, Jesus doesn't go around and require this of everybody. He's not opposed to wealth. He's opposed to the man's relationship to his wealth. Because Jesus sees into his heart, and this man's heart is given over to his wealth. And this is what he's saying. He's calling the man to release his love for his money. To release the fact that his money, his wealth, is what defines him, is what sits at the center of his heart. It is his hope, it's his security, it's his salvation. And Jesus is saying, you can never enjoy intimacy with me. That's what eternal life is. Intimacy with Jesus, joy in God, passion, the blessings of knowing God. You'll never enjoy that if you're harboring another God in your heart. And this man's salvation, it was his wealth. And the reason we know is because he walks away grieved. His his wealth was the heart of who he was. And whatever is your salvation, whatever is at the heart of who you are, you can't live without it. You can't live without it. That's how you identify what's at the heart of who you are. This is how you know you're doing business with Jesus is because... When he's doing business with you, you're going to start to discover that you've set up all these firewalls in your life around Jesus. 
You want Him to come and invade some areas that you want Him to do business in and order your life in, but then there's some areas you don't want Him to get involved in. And He starts knocking down those walls, and it's terrifying. He's breaking them down. He's making you nervous that He's going to ask you for something behind one of these walls. These are the places, these are the things in your life that you can't imagine life without. Those are the things that have your heart, that have our hearts. And it may very well may be wealth. Jesus talks about money more than anything else, more than about sexuality or anything else. He talks about money because he says it's the sin nobody thinks they have. So he always says you have to be on guard against it. You have to actually look out for it. And so what is the thing you can't live without? It may be money. You know, I think for a lot of us it's ambition. The exceptionalism of Stanford. Who are you if you become average or below average? Or significantly below average? Can you live with that? It's terrifying to think about. Who are you if you gain 25 pounds? Except for Jason. Jason's trying to gain 25 pounds, drinking his whole milk over there. For the rest of us. I know Jason really, really well. And he's actually, he's drinking the muscle drink right now. But you know, your heart's attached to your body. Who are you if you gain 25 pounds? Who are you if your friends reject you? Who are you without pleasure or folly? Who are you without approval? Who are you if you don't have control? And it very well may be that Jesus is not asking you to sell everything that you have and follow Him. He might be saying this to some of you. You need to eat and stop exercising. You need to eat something unhealthy and stop exercising. Probably bacon, that would be my guess. But it's not in the text, but we can infer that. (laughs) Because He made pork legal for the Jews, remember? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. He may be requiring you to say no to friends, to difficult social situations, to just overcommitment. Your question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? He might be saying to you, you need to say no to things. You need to disappoint some people. You need to fulfill a small set of obligations. You actually need to put some of your dreams to rest. Right? If your God is control, you may need to go get involved in a long-term messy relationship. Help somebody that's in dire need where you're confused and you don't know what to do and it's going to require a lot of you and it's going to make life complicated for you. What must I do to be saved? God is saying, if, if your God is control, He's probably saying that. You need to go to a place where you're not in control anymore. But He's not going to ask for our ambition, is He? No, because we're at Stanford, and he's not going to ask for our ambition. He might ask you to lay aside some of your goals. You will probably not experience rich, deep enjoyment of who Jesus is, I suspect, unless you probably quit on some of your goals. Unless you're willing to say, ambition no longer dominates me. It doesn't sit at the center of my heart. And the only way to prove it doesn't sit at the center of your heart is if you are actively saying no to it somewhere, and probably somewhere significant. You can't just say, like, it doesn't control me anymore, but I can't say no to this stuff right now. You're lying to yourself and you're lying to Jesus over that. The real question at the end of the day is, what if all you had was Jesus? Would that be enough? 
What if all you had was Jesus? Would it be enough? Do you know, I mean, every religion is essentially geographically based in the center that it started from. I mean, the Muslim faith is largely geographically based in the Middle East. The uh, Eastern religions are still based in their things. Christianity has actually not stayed in its geographical starting point. You know where Christianity is always growing vibrantly? In poverty. That's why the majority of Christians now actually live in the Southern Hemisphere and actually South America and Africa. There are way more professing Christians experience vibrant faith on those continents than there are in the United States anymore. We were a poor place 200 years ago. We're not anymore. The reason why is this. When people have nothing but Jesus, they cling to Jesus sweetly. If you've ever been to those places, you see people who love Him in a way that you've never seen an American love Him. It's terrifying to look at my own faith and meet people in those third world countries who love Jesus. I almost wonder if I even know Jesus when I meet these people because their knowledge is so sweet. I'm convinced more and more that the reason so many people who profess Christian faith but don't feel anything is because we like the idea of being a Christian, but we refuse to let Jesus do big, do business with the things in our hearts. And what we want is, I want to experience Christian joy, but I don't want Jesus to displace these things that are really important to me. I want to experience Jesus, but I don't want Him to displace the things that I love. And that doesn't make any sense. Joy comes from the things you love. You can't say, I want to experience rich life as a Christian, but I don't want Jesus to replace all the things that really, really, really mean the most to me. That's literally like saying, I want to get married, but I don't want it to be about me loving my wife. I want to have a great marriage, but I don't want it to be about me loving my my wife above everybody else. You can't have a great marriage that way. You have an empty, hollow relationship that way. Love is all about giving up other things for the sake of the one you love. And that's actually how you enjoy them. And what a wedding is, is the two things. It's a great yes and it's a great no. It's a yes to one person and a no to everything else. Right? When, I, when Elizabeth and I got married, I said no to PlayStation, to hunting, and to all the other girls in the world. Except for our four little girls. You know, we started our own family. But it's a yes to her and it's a no to everything else. And what Jesus is saying, if you're going to experience life in me, it's a yes to me and it's a no to anything else. Nothing else gets real estate in your heart. But what we want, right, is I want to have a powerful Christian life, but I don't want Jesus to mess with the things that mean the most to me. You will be completely confused and schizophrenic as a Christian if you try to do that. You can't have joy in Christ and not love Him. He's either everything or he's nothing. A big group of things, right, have captured all kinds of real estate in our hearts. Our hearts have set themselves on so many different things. And when we set our heart on all those different things, what we want, right, is more, more, more. We want to grab those things, we want to hold them tight, we want to hoard them, right? These are the things I have to have to be safe, to be okay, because these things are my salvation. And so losing them or Jesus asking them of you is terrifying. And if you're, if you're going to try to hold on to all those things, and then you're also going to try to play the Christian card at the same time, these are the type of questions that are going to play you. Let's just say wealth. 
the way you'll try to play as a Christian but still be holding on to your money is you will think of, you will ask this question, how much money do I have to give away? The person who's holding on to wealth but still wants to call themselves a Christian is, how much money do I have to give away? The person whose love is Jesus actually asks the question, how much money can I give away? Do you see the difference? How much can I, do I have to give away and still get away with kind of being a Christian? Versus, money is not my love. How much can I give away? Friends. If friendship and approval of others is your God and it's your love and not Jesus, your questions will be, do they like me? Am I accepted? How, how many difficult people do I have to love? And how often do I have to help them? At what point do I get to say no to difficult people? If Jesus is your love, your question is, how can I help people? How often? How can I make time? Who can I love on? You'll actually stop seeing cool people and uncool people, people that can benefit you and people that can't benefit you. You will no longer see the world in those categories. You'll just see the world as people who need love, and you'll move toward just whichever one's close to you. Exceptionalism. Will I make it? Can I make it? Am I going to be okay when I make it? But if Jesus has your heart instead of ambition and exceptionalism, how much can I do with the resources I've been given? With your body, do I look good enough? Am I going to be okay? How do I look? Versus how can I use this body to serve? Imagine you had everything you wanted. Don't think about that too long, right? People start listing jet skis and stuff in their mind. But imagine you had everything you wanted and someone said, you lack for nothing. Here's $100,000. Do whatever you want with it. That would be really fun. You'd give it away liberally, right? Because you'd have everything. There'd be no reason to hold on to it. And Jesus, you have everything. You have life. You have forgiveness. You have love. You have the Father. You have the promise of the Lamb's Feast. You have the resurrection In fact, the reason that we don't feel like we have as much as we actually have in Jesus is actually because our imagination is too weak to understand how much we really do have in Jesus. You have everything. So you know know what you can do with your body and with your time and with your education and with your money and with your energy? You can give it away to whoever, whenever, simply for the reason that people might need it. Life is no longer this resource that you're hoarding, hoping to find salvation. It's a resource you get to give away because you have salvation. Because your trust is no longer in those things, but it's in Jesus. He has your heart. He's your delight. He has your love. He's your hope. You know that He's full of love, and He's full of mercy, and He's patient, and He's good, and He's captured your heart because He's given you His heart. The reason we vacillate between spiritual insecurity... And spiritual apathy is this. The, spiritual, the spiritually insecure person is trusting in their goodness. And so they're scared. And we're not looking at Jesus for our hope. We're looking at personal improvement. And the spiritually apathetic person is trusting in some worldly dream. Our hearts are given to it, and so we're confused why we feel nothing towards God. When in fact the main thing is we've withheld our hearts from God. I'll close with this final point and it'll be brief. God's calling us to repent from our goodness. He's calling us to release all these loves that are insufficient in keeping us from enjoying Him. And finally, to rest. Rest is just too dominant of a theme in the Bible 
for us to not talk about regularly. And you see, the the two dynamics of spiritual apathy and spiritual insecurity converge on the rich young ruler, a pretty good person who's doing pretty well, but seeking something. And in order to experience the joy of being in Jesus, you have to begin to see through what the, what the hymn writer, what John Newton calls, all the fair, design, the fair designs that we've schemed. When we've sung this song before called Ask the Lord, it's written by John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. And the song is a prayer for faith. That's actually what it is. It starts with a prayer for faith. He says, God, give me faith. And he remarks that Christian faith broke out when God was good enough to frustrate all his plans. And this is what... Uh, the one verse says, These inward trials I employ, God is speaking to John right here, in order from self and pride to set you free and break your earthly schemes for joy that you will find your all in me. This is what Jesus is doing with the rich young ruler. How difficult will it be for somebody whose hope is in his goodness and in his success to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples are frustrated and amazed. So good people who work hard, it's going to be difficult for them to enter the kingdom of God. That's why they're amazed. And he follows it up, verse 25. It's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the language of the disciples is heightened, right? They're astonished. They're exceedingly astonished. Who then can be saved? Because this saying is saying this is impossible. The meaning is clear. Verse 27. It's impossible. It's impossible for your dreams to save you. It's impossible for your goodness to save you. But with God, all things are possible. In the Bible, there's a story of another young rich man that actually shows up. And he actually does take Jesus' advice. He gives away all that he has for the sake of something that he loves. He gives away his wealth. He gives away his comfort. He gives away his health. He gives away his status and his power and his influence all so that he can finally have the thing that he truly loves. That's Jesus. He is the one who did give up everything for the thing he loves. He was willing to do what the man wasn't. And one scholar made this observation. In verse 22, the rich man walks away, and and there's a word there. It says his heart was grieved. He was disheartened. That same word actually shows up in Matthew when Jesus is on the eve of the crucifixion. Because he was about to give away everything he had for the one he loved. And his heart was grieved. But he walked through his grief and he did it. And the one he loved is his bride, the church, you. He made possible the thing that is impossible. So what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? Trust in him. Your goodness can't save you. If you trust it, all it will do is make you a judgmental person that compares yourself to other people all the time. Your riches and your treasures can't give you life. They'll actually steal any hope you have at joyful life in Jesus. You just trust something. Your goodness and your treasures in Jesus, He is good enough. He is the true treasure. He does give life. When you begin to trust Him, it actually makes you a delightful person to be around makes you humble because you're no longer impressed or even contemplating your own goodness very much. You're no longer dismissive of anyone else because of their badness. 
When you trust in him, it relieves you of any fear of losing your treasures. Because guess what? You're going to lose all of your treasures. Do know that. You are going to lose every single treasure you have that is not Jesus. But you won't be afraid of that anymore. In fact, what you'll do is maybe before they're all taken from you, you'll give them all away. You might even give them away when it's not reasonable to, or it's inopportune to do it. But you won't be threatened. You'll be delighted because Jesus loves you, and your delight is in Him. He's the one who's given far more for you than you could ever give for Him. Let's pray.